All right, well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and get to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 6. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's a hardback black one underneath the seat that you're in. You can grab that one. Uh, You can pull it up on your device, or you can look at it on the screen. Revelation chapter 9, starting in verse 6. I'm willing to bet that uh, I could probably guess the general framework of how your wedding went. And I'm not saying like the details of it. I don't know the details of your wedding because perhaps I don't even know you at all. So it would be very strange if I knew how your wedding went. Um, But I could probably guess the outline of it, the general structure of it, because uh, in the West, we kind of have a general structure of how weddings go. I could probably even guess the general structure of your relationship from dating to engagement all the way to the wedding day, right? Because we have a general structure of how that goes. And I tell you that because in the ancient Near East, Jewish weddings had a general structure, but they're nothing like we understand here in the West, there's actually two pieces that are really important to a Jewish wedding. The first is called the betrothal. And what happens here is a bride price is paid. And upon that moment, the man and the woman are legally married, but then they separate. And the woman goes back to her father's house and the son goes back to his father's house to begin to prepare a place for his bride. And it's not until the father says to the son, hey, it's finished, go and get your bride, that then the wedding ceremony will begin to happen. And then what will happen is they will leave and there'll be a huge fanfare. The village will follow and they will blow trumpets and it'll be this huge party. And he will go and get his bride, gather her up and bring her back to the place that he has prepared for her. Now, why do I tell you that? Because you just need to know trivia about Jewish weddings later in your life? No. Do not. I tell you that because what we're going to experience today in Revelation chapter 19 and 20 is a wedding day. That you and I, as the people of Jesus, are in the betrothal period. That we have been purchased with the bride price of the life of Jesus on the cross. And he has ascended and returned to the Father's house to prepare a place for us. And what we will see In the moments ahead is that there will be a day that the father says to the son, go get your bride and he will gather us back to himself. So if you have your Bibles, we will see this here in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse six. If you're able to stand, I'd invite you to stand as we read God's word together. We'll read Revelation chapter 19, six through 10. At the end of our reading, we say this phrase, the very word, just as a way to separate God's perfect words from mine that are not. This is what the word of God says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen of the righteous deeds is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You can have a seat. So here's our main idea for our time together. The return of Jesus should cause the Christian to worship God, long for the day, and examine ourselves. I'll give it to you one more time. The return of Jesus 
should cause the Christian to worship God, long for the day, and examine ourselves. Now, let me give you a big caveat before we really jump into the text here. We're going to cover almost two full chapters of the Bible today. And specifically, there's a part of this that people want to talk about. They've got big questions about when and how and what's going on. And if you're here and you're thinking, yes, I'm finally going to get the answers to all of my questions about what's going to happen. Let me just disappoint you right now. I'm not going to address it. And you're like, where's Brian, man? Where's he at? He's not here today. Here's why. George Beasley Murray says it like this in his commentary on Revelation. We do well to recognize that John does not write to satisfy our curiosity about details of the future. By his symbolic representations, he conveys his message of the victory of the Lamb over those who war against him and the judgment upon all who allow themselves to be led astray by the enemies of God and man. Beyond that, we cannot with confidence say more on the basis of this passage. Here's the point. Today we're going to make the main thing the main thing. We will highlight the victory of the Lamb today. Because that's precisely what we're going to see here in Revelation 19 and 20. Alistair Begg says it like this. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. And so what we can see plainly here from Revelation 19 and 20, we will make the main thing, and that is the return and the victory of the Lamb. And so we'll ask and answer this question, what is Jesus coming back to do? What is Jesus coming back to do? The first thing you see starting in verse 6 of chapter 19, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The first, reason, what, the first thing that Jesus is coming back to do is he's coming back to gather his bride. He's coming back to gather his bride. And Jesus uses this language that you've heard before in John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And here in Revelation chapter 19, 6 and following, we see the father say to the son, go get your bride. It is ready. This is the moment where Jesus will come and gather his bride to himself. And maybe the question for you is, well, who's his bride? Often the Bible depicts the people of Jesus as the bride of Christ. In fact, we see that in Ephesians chapter 5. When Paul gives us instructions to husbands, he says, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul uses this analogy and pictures Jesus as the husband, the groom of the church who is the bride. So we, the people of Jesus, those who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, we are the bride of Christ who the Father will send to say, go gather your bride. She's ready. The room is ready. Go get her. And what's the response? The response is celebration. They say, hallelujah, praise Yahweh for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And they rejoice and exult and give him glory. There's a significant celebration that Jesus is coming to gather his bride. 
The second thing that Jesus is going to do when he returns, you see in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has name. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword and from which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written king of kings and Lord of lords. The second thing that Jesus is coming back to do is eliminate evil. He's coming back to eliminate evil. We see in this section here in Revelation chapter 19 that Jesus is pictured in a way that we don't often picture Jesus. We, we see Jesus here as a warrior, one who comes riding on a horse with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth and a robe dipped in blood. And the commentators make it really clear that Jesus is the sole executor of the wrath of God. Jesus alone will make war and eliminate evil. He does not need our help. He will need no army. He is powerful enough on his own to, in a moment upon his return, with his very presence, to bind the beast, to bind the false prophet, and to bind Satan and say, evil is no more. Because his arrival means the elimination of evil. And you can think about it like this. Can you remember back when you watched superhero cartoons when you were a kid? Pick your superhero. It doesn't matter. I'm going to pick Superman. And if you don't like that, well, then you can pray about it. That's fine. (laughs) Let's just imagine that you're watching a Superman cartoon. Inevitably, there's going to be a scenario where a citizen gets captured by the villain and that villain takes that citizen off and the citizen finds himself in a moment where I think evil's going to win. I'm hopeless. I'm not going to make it. And in that very moment in the cartoon, Superman bursts in and the citizen shouts like this. It's Superman. I'm saved. Why do they say that? Because they know at some level that the hero's arrival means the elimination of evil. How much more, when our hero arrives, will evil be eliminated? Jesus' arrival means the elimination of evil. He will come back to eliminate it. And listen, I, I know that for some of you, you're face-to-face with that evil right now. You're staring down real deal suffering. You face a real injustice You're a victim of abuse. You've lost a loved one and it felt like it was way too early. And you're face to face with the bustedness, the brokenness of the world, the wickedness that happens in the world. You're face to face with it. You get online and you're immediately confronted with the chaos of the world. But let me try to give you some hope today that in the face of all that, you can hold on to the reality that there will be a day that Jesus will return and all of that will be gone. All of that will be gone. Because he will come back to eliminate evil. His arrival means the elimination of evil. Third thing that Jesus is coming back to do, we see in chapter 20, starting in verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also... And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The third thing that Jesus is coming back to do is fully establish his reign. He's coming back to fully establish his reign. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you might feel this like tension in yourself. You're like, hold on, man. I thought Jesus was already reigning. Like, you went to school for this. Shouldn't you get this right, Cade? Like, I thought he was already reigning. You probably have said that to us before, Cade. Is Jesus reigning or will he reign? And the answer is yes. And you're like, that's extremely unhelpful to me. I, I don't appreciate you today. The theologians refer to this as an already and the not yet. Jesus is already reigning, and there is a not yet reality to this. Uh, and I was talking to my friend about it, and he helped me with this illustration that I'll illustrate in this way. Uh, my wife and I, in 2017, uh, had the pleasure of meeting a couple in our neighborhood. At the moment, we had been married for five years in 2017. This couple that we met, we found out had been married for 73 years. 73 years. Um, so there's nobody arguing. Nobody's arguing that one of those people was more married than the other, Right? Right, like Jenny and I, we were married. That couple, they were married, you know? Like, they were married. There was a fullness to their relationship that we had not and have not yet experienced. So too with the reign of Jesus. Is Jesus fully reigning over all things right now? Yes. Is there a fullness to that that we will yet one day experience? Yes. And so this is good news for both parties. As I was talking to my friend, he identified these two parties. There's some of you in here that you just think like, I just got to hold on till heaven. Like I got to get through this chaos and we'll get there one day. But the reality is, is Jesus reigns right now. He says when he comes onto the scene in the gospel of Mark, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus reigns right now. You live in the kingdom as, a, as the people of Jesus right now. And that will one day, day made, be made more full. And for, for others of you, you're in this scenario where you're like, look, this is just as good as it gets. This dumpster fire that we're living in right now, this is as good as it gets. I'm not sure what's really going on. So I better just make this place the best kingdom that I can while I have to endure this place. But to do so would be to miss out on the fact that there is one day coming where the fullness of the kingdom of God will be made known to us. We long for that day. Jesus is returning to fully establish his reign. And again, I'll, I'll stop here just to note, this is the section that people want to talk about. This is the thing. They're just like, I got some questions for you, man. They want to ask questions about when and how. When is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? And listen, I'll say it to you again. Those are not unimportant questions. They're just not the most important question. The question to ask is not when will this happen or how will this happen? The better question to ask is who is the one reigning? And there is no doubt about who that is. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. He is coming back to fully establish his reign. The fourth thing that Jesus is coming back to do, we see in chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Dead, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The fourth thing that Jesus is returning to do is to pronounce judgment. He's returning to pronounce judgment. And maybe you notice as I read through it, that there seems to be two things happening here. Look back at verse 12 with me. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And note, books, plural, books were opened. Then another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, plural. How? According to what they had done. Uh, A pastor who is in Richardson, I've heard him say it like this, that this moment is the judgment of works. And in that moment, I say that phrase, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you're like, hold on, man. Jesus is going to judge our works. You have stood up here and told me that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You've, heard, you've probably read Ephesians 2 before. It's like, this is a gift of God, Cade, that no one may boast. Have you read the Bible today, Cade? Like, I'm not sure if you know how this works. It's, we're not judged by works. And listen, in some ways, you're right. We do not receive entrance into God's family. We do not stay into God's family. We are not saved and made more like Jesus by our effort. By our earning, it is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. So if you don't hear anything else today, salvation in Christ is in him alone, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. However, the way that you live as a Christian does matter. And this is not anti the Bible. Paul will say in Colossians chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. At the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says, look, if you're a Christian, you should run after different things. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should think about different things because you are something different. It does matter how you live. And so what's happening here? That there's going to be a very real judgment for how we live for the works that we do, the things that we have done, according to the text. Not that we will receive salvation from, but that we will, as, as other people say, that we will receive reward from. Heavenly reward hinges on how we live our lives. So if you're wondering, can I just get saved and live however I want on the way to heaven? You've missed it. You've missed it. The way that we live does matter. God does have something to say about our lives regarding holiness. And yet you do notice that there's another judgment here. Look at verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This judgment has a consequence. The other does not. This judgment is if you're not a part of this, there's a very severe consequence on the other side. If your name is not written in the book of life, you're thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet and Satan and death and Hades. And if you're thinking, I have zero interest in being thrown in that lake of fire, Cade. How do I get my name written in this book of life? It comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. That there is no other way for your name to be written in the Lamb's book of life other than belief in the Lamb. 
And what I'm giving to you today is not just check a box, say, yeah, I'll do that. I have no interest in going to the lake of fire. It's far more significant than that. That to believe on Jesus is not simply to say something. It's actually to give up your very life. That Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, if anyone would come after me, he's got to deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would, whoever would save his life will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. You want to know what it takes to, to get into the Lamb's book of life? It's to lay your very life down for the sake of the Lamb. To say, you have the ways to life. You are more satisfying. There is no other way to life than through you. It's not simply, I will say whatever I have to say so I don't have to go there one day. But it's actually to bet your entire life on the reality that Jesus is the one who has lived, died, and risen. And there is no other way into this life but through him. And that's available to you today. You don't have to leave here today wondering if your name is written in the book of life. You can leave here today certain because I've believed on him. I've confessed with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in my heart that God's raised him from the dead. I've laid my life down before him. I said, you are Lord and I am not. And you can leave today certain my name is in that book. It's available to you today. And Jesus is coming back to pronounce very real judgment. This is what he's doing in his return. Now, how should we respond in light of this? How should this affect our life? Three things. The first thing is this. If these things are true, if Jesus is coming back to do these things, this is the first thing. We should worship God. It should cause us to worship God. In fact, look back at verse chapter 19, verse 6 and following. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. What do they do? Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. They express themselves in the face of this return in worship. And in fact, they, the angel will say to John later in verse 10, look at it with me. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. That the reality of Jesus' return that he will come to gather his bride and eliminate evil and to establish his reign fully and to pronounce judgment, all of that as the people of Jesus, what it should cause us to do is explode in worship to our God because our God is the one who will reign. Our God is the one who will gather his people. Our God is the one who will one day finally and completely wipe out evil once and for all. And thus we as his people explode in praise to him because he will do it. I said this to you before. I, we don't gather as a pastoral staff and like, look, we'd like to plan an hour service. We've got this weird 25 minutes. So Patrick, would you mind queuing up some songs for us? That's not what's happening in that moment. We are trying to give you space as the people of God to express praise to the God who has come and will come again. So if these things are true of Jesus, it should cause us to worship God. It should cause us to worship God. Third, a uh, second thing. If these things are true, then it should cause us to long for this day. We as the people of God, we should long for this day. I'm not sure how you've been leaving our times together in the book of Revelation. For some of you, you may have like approached the book of Revelation with a ton of fear. And maybe that's because of how it was pitched to you in days gone by how it was told to you as you were a kid. And so you approached the book with a lot of fear. You were like to talk about end times. is like a really scary thing for you. 
but I've heard many people say this before. The book of Revelation for the people of Jesus shouldn't leave us with fear. It should leave us with an enormous amount of hope. Because our God is the one who will win. There is no doubt about it. And so we should leave these moments with tons of hope instead of fear. Why? One, because evil will end. Jesus will show up and his arrival will mean the elimination of that evil. And so listen to me. For some of you, you're in the face of it. You're you're groaning in the midst of your suffering or the injustice that you have faced or the evil that you're walking through. You're groaning, much like Paul says in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 22 and following. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And some of you, you know that groan really well. You know the groan of loss. You know the groan of facing injustice. You know the groan of your body not working as it's supposed to. And in the face of that, it should cause us to long for the day that Jesus will return and eliminate all that stuff. Am I saying that, am I saying that It's not real suffering. It's not real evil. It's not real injustice. And we shouldn't call it those things. No, we should. And we should seek justice. And we should eliminate evil insofar as we are able. But what this reality should do, what the return of Jesus should do in us is cause us to face those things differently than the world around us. Friends, we should not be the people in the world that get caught up in the chaos with the world. We ought to face it far differently. We ought to face it as if we will win, because we will. And that's the difference. Not only will evil be, will be eliminated, but victory will be final. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 and 18, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. My friends, if you just continue to stare at the chaos of the world, you know what will happen? You'll get caught in the chaos. But if you could pull your eyes up and look to the God who will one day set all of this right, as we look to the things that are unseen, not to the things that are seen, we will be able to say, we are the people who will win because our God is the one who wins. And so we long for this day. In the face of all of that, we long for this day. Maybe for some of you in this moment, you're like, yeah, man, but like, we've been waiting a long time for Jesus to come back. Like, I've been asking for quite some time for Jesus to return. I'd really like him to come back. And for that matter, Cade, like, generations on generations have longed for Jesus to come back. So is this really going to happen? Like, we've been waiting for a while. Well, I'll just remind you of how long the people of God waited for him to show up the first time. That from Genesis 3.15 on, the people of God longed for the arrival of the Messiah. And they were reminded with Abram. And they were reminded with King David. And they were reminded by the prophets, God's going to send one who will restore and draw the people of God back to him. And they longed and they waited and they longed and they waited. And now we, 
we gather not longing and waiting for the arrival of the Messiah the first time. We will gather each December looking backwards and saying, he did do it. He did send him. He, he fulfilled the promise just as he said. And so my question to you is this. If he did it then, why would he not do it later? If Jesus showed up once based on the promises of God, he will show up again based on the promises of God. This is an issue of God's faithfulness to us. And there is no doubt about that, my friends. If he was faithful, then he will be faithful in the future. Jesus will return. Finally, how does it affect our life? If this is true, then it should cause us to examine ourselves. If this is true, if Jesus will return and these things will happen, then we should examine ourselves. Why? Because he's going to return with very real judgment. He's going to return with very real judgment. You see that at the end of verse of chapter 20. But Peter says it like this in 2 Peter chapter 3, 10 and following, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It'll be quick. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. All of that's going to get rolled up. All of it's going to be exposed. So here's what Peter's instruction is, verse 11. Since then, all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are awaiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter's instruction is people of God, as you wait, think about how you're living. Live lives of holiness and godliness. Reflect on how you are living. If you're here and you're thinking, look, dude, I got saved when I was little. I'm going to live however I want and get into heaven one day. My friend, you've missed it. You've missed it. God does care about how we live. Not as a way to gain salvation, but because we have it. It causes us to live differently. So if this reality of Jesus' return is true, we ought to examine what kind of lives are we living because there's very real judgment perhaps we should pray this prayer of examination along with the psalmist in psalm 139 search me O god and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way god look deep into the parts of me that no one knows and uproot anything that is grievous to you you are god i am not your ways are best mine are not and we examine ourselves because jesus will return with real judgment and Because there is only one victorious path here, and it's in Christ. The only way to victory is through Jesus. The only way into the book of life is through Jesus. And so if you're here, and you're thinking, I'll sort it out with Jesus later. You heard the words of Peter that he will return like a thief. And there's very real judgment. And I'm not just trying to scare you into making a decision today. I'm trying to love you and say to you, There's very real judgment one day. But listen to me. There's very real grace for you right now. So believe on Jesus. Trust him. Lay your life down and say, your way is not mine. And what you will receive is not judgment. What you will receive is welcome and grace. And your name goes in the book of life. And you will stand before him one day in front of that white throne. And your name will be written once and for all because of the lamb. That's available to you today. But Jesus is coming back with very real judgment. And so we should examine ourselves. 
So Christians, we have good news today. We should leave hopeful today. Our God will return, gather his bride, eliminate evil, establish his reign, and execute, execute judgment. And we will rejoice in that day. And so what, what should happen in these next few moments? That when we stand, we should erupt in worship to our God. Because he is the one who will return and gather us and eliminate evil and establish his reign, pronounce judgment. And if you're here and not a follower of Jesus, then my invitation to you on these next few moments, that when we stand to sing, that you would come forward to one of our pastors or prayer partners and you would just ask them this question. Can you help me understand what it means to follow Jesus? And we'll talk through it with you. But we must respond to this reality, to this good news that Jesus will return. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes? Uh, perhaps you just need the prayer, the prayer examination from the Psalms. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Just ask the Lord to reveal those things to you. Repent of them and then receive the grace of God to you. And maybe your response just needs to be to stand and shout God's praise because his promises are true. Or maybe, maybe you need to believe on Jesus today. But I'm going to pray and I'm, my invitation is for you to respond however it is that God says to do so. Father, we are so grateful to you. That your promises are true. That your son Jesus will one day return. And the groan that we feel as the people of God will be done. That causes us to long and to celebrate right now. Father, I pray for these people. That you would give them the, the faith, the courage to do whatever it is that you're calling them to do. Shape us to be more like your son in these moments. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.